If you'd like to better understand which financial KPIs make the most sense for your organization, join us in the KPIs Every Financial Controller and FPNA Should Master event. In this 60-minute webinar, Paul Barnhurst, the founder of the FPNA guy, will dive into the key metrics every financial controller and FPNA professional should master, focusing on the formulas behind the numbers and the reason behind implementing their tracking in the first place. The webinar will take place on October 19th, starting from 12 p.m. EST. No matter what type of company or organization you work for, you won't want to miss this event. So find the link in the episode resources or head over to bebold.com forward slash webinar hyphen subscription to register. Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Simone Grimes. Simone is a chief financial officer and qualified audit committee financial expert with deep expertise in financial strategy, executive leadership, and board service for high growth and heavily regulated companies in multiple industry sectors including financial services, insurance, housing finance, and public accounting. Simone's diverse and rich career has included working at PricewaterhouseCoopers, where she led external audits in the financial services sector for large banks, insurance companies, and private equity companies. She then continued at Grant Thornton as a practice leader overseeing audit and advisory engagements in high-growth sectors such as consumer products and healthcare. Simone served as a special advisor at the Federal Housing Finance Agency in Washington, D.C. for nine years, strategically advising on mission-critical decisions impacting the conservatorship of the nation's two largest housing finance companies, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. As special advisor to the conservatorship, she worked with the boards of directors to implement a cybersecurity risk oversight program and board charter, as well as worked with the compensation committees annually to evaluate the performance of their respective senior management teams, and include named executive officers. Simone oversaw operational initiatives, including the development and implementation of a comprehensive diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy and operational plan. Simone teaches classes nationally and internationally for the Institute of Internal Auditors on a variety of corporate governance, audit, and fraud topics. She holds an MBA from Cornell University, is a certified public accountant in the state of Virginia, and a certified internal auditor. In addition to her professional and academic accolades, Simone is active on multiple boards of directors, including serving on the audit, finance, and governance committees, where she leverages her corporate governance, philanthropic support, and financial management expertise. She remains passionate about returning value to investors, raising capital, and growing businesses. Simone is a champion of financial literacy for grades K through 12, mentorship for at-risk youth, and systems that facilitate good governance, including the reporting of fraud, waste, and abuse within private and public organizations. Simone, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Yeah, today we're going to be discussing your career, some of the challenges associated with M&A and integration, and the importance of ESG initiatives. 
I'm excited to learn from you because a lot of these uh, topics are emerging. Um, ESG is something that I hadn't even heard of until maybe a few months ago. So let's get started. Okay. Um, as always, let's start with you and your story and how it is that you got to where you are today. Thanks so much, Megan. So, you know, I would call my career journey very non-traditional. So my parents were doctors. And when I went to school, I went to school to study sciences. That was kind of like the trajectory that was put in front of me. And when I got to college, it was like abundantly clear that I could not stand the sight of blood or cutting into anything. <laughs> so I was really trying to find something in the sciences that involved the least amount of plasma. Let me just say that. <laughs> so I studied psychology. Um, and then halfway through that, it was like abundantly clear to me that I was not going to pursue that as a full career. You know, you have to do um, go to graduate school, likely do a doctorate. And I, I just kind of knew that wasn't what I was going to do. So um, after I graduated, I did what now is very common, but then was not. And that's to basically start my own business um, in a space that I didn't know much about, but just wanted to pursue. And so I went into the food services industry, like starting restaurants specifically. And that's really what I worked on for the first four to five years. And in that time, um, I was able to grow the business. I had to experience raising capital. So, you know, contacting investors, uh, bringing money in, and then eventually um, was approached for an exit, for an acquisition. And that was really my first time uh, really considering that, you know, a business that I started could, you know, result in just big multiples and, and I could just walk away from it. Um, but I did. And that's really um, how I got more interested in business from, from being someone who studied psychology. From that, I was able to kind of segue into working at Progressive, a large national insurance carrier. And I worked in the strategic initiative space. So that was like rolling out products um, across markets. And that really showed me that I was, um, I understood the due diligence process and that I understood underwriting, um, but I was much more interested in the financial side of things. Um, and so from there, I went back to school. I got an accounting degree. I eventually got an MBA focused on strategy and finance. And from there, you know, I've really worked in the financial services industry ever since. Um, I've worked in public accounting. I've worked with um, large national consulting firms, insurance, housing finance, capital markets, and with large banks. And I've also worked in non-financial services spaces, such as consumer goods, ag tech, industrial agriculture, and telecom. Um, so I think I would just summarize in saying that you know, it was really identifying what I didn't like, which helped me lean into what I did like and not being afraid to kind of go back and refine my skills or get more skills um, in order to be a little bit more, um, make more advances yeah. in life. That's an amazing journey. Um, first of all, I, I also started college as a pre-med major and quickly realized Ooh. that I couldn't get past <laughs> organic chemistry. Um, and uh, found myself like being pretty good at accounting. So I stuck with it. Mm -hmm. um, also, how did you, how did you decide to go into food services? Honestly, I, at the time I was a vegetarian and 
really couldn't go many places and eat. And so I just thought it would be really cool to offer up interesting, creative, vegetarian meals um, and see if people would be willing to leave their homes and come and get vegetarian food. And what I thought was going to be a very small opening turned out to have like valued pollock going viral. But in the local area we were in, we ended up with like lines outside the door for, for things like battered cauliflower and, you know, vegan mac and cheese and stuff like that. And, um, so it really became a lot bigger than I ever thought, but it was really, you know, a good, a good journey. I didn't, I really wasn't sure what to do. That was the only thing I knew I really liked. That's awesome. Um, so as you look back on your career, are there, and maybe you've already touched on them, but moves or stories that stand out in your mind as turning points? I mean, obviously going back to school was was a big one for you. Yeah, I would say that um, kind of as I mentioned, kind of having that early success and kind of being able to go through an M&A transaction in my 20s was yeah. definitely a game changer for me. It gave me a lot of confidence and success. It really helped me understand, you know, we talk about kind of valuing assets a lot um, in the CFO and accounting space, but this really gave me a tangible, you know, experience of, hey, I built something and I'm selling it and here's how it's valued. So I think that was a big turning point. The other was really speaks to how I got my next position because I really had gotten very um, active in the Chamber of Commerce locally. And that was because my objective was because I needed to find out how to raise money. But the end result was that I ended up meeting people who were able to identify that I had a skill set and show me how to transfer it. So of my own accord, I never would have gone from food services to like auto insurance. (laughs) But it was people in the company who were like, you know, we have to roll out a strategic initiative and new products and you've demonstrated skills that could be segued. And I think that really helped me realize that skills that you develop in one place are usually very transferable. Um, and if you can maintain that flexibility, then you can really jump around into a lot of different industries. So I would say that was um, something that really stood out to me. And then, you know, going back to school later in life is a little humbling, you know, <laughs> like a little older than everyone else. Um, but it's also was really good for me because it reminded me that, you know, you should always go back and be in a space of continuous learning, whether that's going back to traditional school, whether that's learning and leaning into new spaces, new industries, what have you. Um, it's really important to kind of stay green and stay in that mentality of like innovation and constant learning. It's really important, like, for example, in the um, space I'm in right now, um, we're, constant, we're constantly trying to better understand our customers and so you have to you can never be satisfied that you already know the answer you have to continuously be thinking about you know what's the next problem that I haven't solved yet yeah I'm a big believer in lifelong learning too um and throughout your career you've managed businesses across multiple M&A stages so what is the CFO's strategic role in an M&A it's such a great question Megan (laughs) and I'm going to pop out I think it really depends yeah um and I'm just going to kind of reframe that because there's just so many um there's so many different forms sizes shapes scope of transactions so you know you think of a traditional M&A um transaction you think of like a horizontal one 
And that's really where a larger company that operates in the same space as a smaller company um, and may or may not be a direct competitor seeks to acquire it. So like a good example that I would say that's happening right now would be like Frontier Airlines and Spirit Airlines. That would be considered like a horizontal transaction. Like a vertical transaction, that's where you see a larger company trying to acquire kind of parts and pieces along its value chain. So mm-hmm. acquire suppliers, maybe acquire its customers, valuable inputs. You can think of like Tesla buying up battery companies, solar energy suppliers, automated manufacturing technologies, et cetera. And then more of a conglomerate M&A where you have a company that deviates completely out of its industry or sector and start diversifying its portfolio. So like um, an Amazon buying a Whole Foods. So you're talking about a tech company getting into the grocery space. You know, it's more of a diversifying and and broadening its scope type of strategy. And then I'll say two more things and then I will, I promise I will answer your question. (laughs) So in terms of parties to the transactions, so in an M&A, you can have like a company, B2B company, buying another company. You can also have, and what's more commonly seen, is like a private equity um, fund going out and aggregating across an industry. So you have one buyer who's kind of buying up a lot of competitors um, in one space. And you see that quite a bit. Um, so I would just say that it depends because it depends who you're representing and, and what side of the transaction you're on. But for the sake of answering your question, just a very basic traditional M&A where a larger company is buying another one in its space. I'd say that um, the role of the CFO, whether you're on the sell side or the buy side, is really to start early and be involved in the strategy setting. So much of the transaction is because um, an entity is trying to achieve its desired end state. And so being involved in that strategy um, on the front end is critically important. I would say as a CFO, Clear task of really being the voice of reason with inside the company, really challenging is that the best way to accomplish? You know, if it's a growth goal, if it's a market domination goal, whatever is the goal, you know, is acquisition the best way to go about it? Um, if you decide that it is, then, you know, getting the planning um, phase in early. And that would involve things like lining up if you're on the buy side lining up capital, it's going to be um, laying out who are all your stakeholders. If it's a public company, you know, you need to really lay out a very strong uh, communication plan for all the um, stockholders um, and other key stakeholders. And then um, the tax strategy. The tax strategy is so important. It's such a critical part of the transaction that um, it it requires a lot of time up front. And then if you're on the south side, I would say, all of those things I mentioned, plus um, to the extent that you're representing an organization that wants to either go out to auction or identify buyers, I would say it's very important to engage in a preliminary due diligence process because the last thing you want to do is kind of get halfway through the transaction and realize that there's some real big red flags that won't allow the other party to close. So you want to give yourself time, you know, engage a third party have a due diligence done, correct all, you know, potential issues um, to prepare yourself for the transaction. And um, what are... a very long answer. No, (laughs) that was a great answer. Um, What are some of the red flags that people should be watching out for? 
um, tax liabilities, issues with regulators. Um, I would say, generally speaking, if you're if you're the seller, you're going to have to um, sign up for reps and warranties, and that can go out for as long as you know three years, um, whatever the duration of those reps and warranties is. Uh, some of them involve kind of your contracts with customers. You want to really sure all of those things up. Um, and make sure there's no compliance issues um, and that you're not at risk of losing key customers. So let's say 70% of your revenue comes from 10% of your customers. Are those are the contracts with those customers really tight? Um, and can they withstand scrutiny? Are those customers solvent? Um, things like that. And let's talk about the post-acquisition integration. Um... What challenges do you see faced during that time? So um, post-deal integration means you've gone through all the phases, you've agreed to all the terms. If you've done your job as a buyer, you've engaged in some clauses in the contract that allow you to hold back some of the deal funds until certain milestones are reached. And if you're on the seller side, you've avoided agreeing to those terms because you want as much of your money up front. But either way, you've come to a good agreement, and now you are integrating the two companies. So during the deal process, the buyer and the seller's team would have come together and started to map out operationally how are these two companies going to come together. And what should have been identified in that phase is things like, how are you going to align your financial reporting? So making some key assumptions, but assuming that the um, acquired entity is truly practicing GAAP. Your financial reporting is um, is tight. Uh, it can be merged with the um, buyer's uh, financials and then system issues. You're also during that time going to identify kind of key personnel that you want to retain, and you've likely um, engaged them in some type of contract that keeps them there for whatever length of time you need them to stay. Post-deal integration, um, what you will find... <laughs> that everything you thought was going to happen up front doesn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, you're really going to be looking at um, the first 100 days is really key. Can, are those people really going to stay and are they going to perform at the level they did before? Hopefully you've put in some clauses that keep them performing well and incentives to, to continue to focus on the success of the company. But you want to make sure that you're not engaging in any um, extraordinary glass-breaking compensation contracts with the people who are at your company already you know, feel compelled to not really be helpful to this new party because um, they seem like the new shiny object. The other thing you want to do is really focus on culture. I would say system, financial reporting, um, contractual provisions to retain key personnel. That's a little easier. The harder thing is melding the culture. So mm-hmm. I would say a big challenge is to the extent you're acquiring or you are part of a smaller company that was tightly held by a founder, getting that getting that um, workforce to be comfortable with moving from kind of like a monarchy type of style where all decisions go through this one founder who everyone loves and adores to more of a collaborative working style where decisions are made by a group of, of people across the organization. And really that shift seems simple, but it often isn't. Um, so I would say that in the in the first 100 days, you're really trying to manage the people. Um, and the other thing is, 
really thinking about what it was about the culture in the um, acquired entity that made it so valuable. So, you know, we'll say things like culture eat strategy for breakfast, and it seems cliche until you realize that, you know, maybe it was the um, dean stays on Fridays. Maybe it was to bring the pet to, you know, all these small intangible things that collectively made up a culture that was really high performing that slowly gets um, to get watered down. And then the asset that you acquired is, is less valuable. So really trying to pay attention to what are those key areas and intangibles in that acquired entity that you really need to maintain in order for that asset to be as valuable as you thought it was. Yeah, that's great insight and advice. Um, so as a CFO who's maybe on the verge of facing an M&A situation, what advice would you offer them? Is, is there a way to prepare yourselves for it or is it basically trial by fire? No, don't do trial by fire. (laughs) Way too much money on the line. (laughs) I would say plan early. Um, Spend a lot of time on the planning. Um, I don't think you can go wrong by over planning. I mean, a good six months of planning, I think is fair, depending on the size of the transaction. And generally speaking, it's going to take about six months to close a transaction. And that's in the best scenario. So that's a good, good opportunity to really plan. Get focused on the tax strategy. You really have to understand um, all the um, tax advantages that you intend to gain and what legislative changes are on the horizon that may impact that tax strategy. I would say get your deal partners lined up. So that's going to be your um, capital providers. Those are going to be your third parties that are going to help you with due diligence. Um, Your outside counsel that's going to help you with the contract language and negotiation. You want to identify your outside brokers who might help bring the deals to you. And then I would say, um, don't underestimate the communications plan. So really think about who are all the people um, across the value chain that need to be communicated to and when, because you know some will need to be um, communicated to before you get under contract and some can wait until after. Um, but knowing that up front and then as you already asked, like just don't underestimate the post deal integration. And I'm just curious. Like, don't like, go in. Don't just don't just go in and say I'll figure it out as I go. Get those partners lined up because there's there's people you know there's a lot of third parties that are experts in this space, and you really don't want to um, you know time kills deals, and so you want to go through the deal at the right pace and get to closing because you know you can get under contract, but getting to closing is a different story. You really don't want to kill it with um, kind of learning on the fly experiences. You want to have those people around you that know how to successfully get to the end quickly. Um, And I'm curious, like, as you look back on yourself in your 20s selling your restaurant, knowing what you know now, is there something you would have done differently back then? Oh, my gosh, Megan, I got so lucky. (laughs) (laughs) I think knowing what I know now, honestly, the fact that I... I was very, um, I, I wasn't expected, but I did have good legal counsel, um, good tax, count, I mean, um, financial counsel and tax counsel really guiding me and leaning into them and doing everything possible to not make the transaction difficult was probably the best thing I did. I would say that when you're the seller, unless you have, there's a term in negotiations called BATNAS, like best alternative to negotiated agreement. So if you don't have a better alternative to that agreement, you really should lean into it and be helpful. Um, I think people shoot themselves in the foot sometimes by um, trying to overcomplicate transactions. 
when on the buyer side, they just want to get the deal done and move on. Um, so I would say that even though I didn't realize it back then, probably my lack of sophistication helped <laughs> and made the transaction go very smoothly. Um, the other thing I did was probably communicate too much with my investors, but in the end, that was probably the be- better thing to do um, because we got buy-in from our investors very early and we got them to agree to kind of a um, what was going to be their ROI. And that allowed um, some of the preferred um, investors to get like a higher ROI. So communicating um, across your all your stakeholders is important. And a lot of those things I kind of did just accidentally fall yeah. into, probably because I was nervous about the transaction. <laughs> well, it sounds like it all worked out. So the alumni spotlight yeah. named you as one of the top 100 CFOs of 2021. Congratulations, first of all, on this achievement. But what does this recognition mean to you? You're going to hate my answer, Megan. You're probably <laughs> going to edit it out. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think it means that much. Honestly, I think each year they have to, each school puts forward some names. And this year they put my name forward. I don't think it means that much. Um, well, I think you sell yourself short. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and uh, but, I mean, it's nice. I appreciate it. Yeah, I guess those little recognitions are always nice. Um, so you posted on your LinkedIn that the fine imposed by the SEC on BNY Mellon regarding its SEG reports. So that was really interesting. I just have found um, the SEC lating its climate um, benefits in its uh annual report. And that kind of dovetails into a new initiative by the SEC. And that's really kind of doing away with greenwashing, which is, you know, um, that may mislead investors to think that you're doing more for the climate than you are. But just kind of on that point, the SEC has used this same rule to enforce a bunch of kind of new, I'm going to call them emerging issues, because um, Simone, can I stop? Can I stop you for one second? Because you cut out for me, and I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't hear you. So let's go oh, back. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I don't know if it was on my end or yours, and I apologize for it. But let's go back to the start of this question. I'll ask it again, and uh, you can start over with your answer. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. So you recently posted on your LinkedIn the fine that was imposed by the SEC on BNY Mellon regarding its. ESG reports. So what role should the CFO play in avoiding such heavy penalties for their companies? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I think this is a really interesting space right now. So first, I would start by saying that the actual penalties that the SEC imposes aren't big, specifically relative to the entity. They're more of like sending a signal to the market, and um, it's more of like a ding to reputational risk. But what the SEC is doing is really leveraging um, a rule that states that no firm shall make any untrue statement and material fact in any of those registered documents. So that's going to be your annual report, your 10K, your Q, your, um, any of the, the reports that are regularly issued. And what it's doing is kind of using that one provision, that one law to say, as new issues emerge, so for example, like the COVID pandemic, as those emerge, if you don't fully disclose the risks that have come up as a result of that, then the SEC can use this one kind of rule to penalize, to penalize a company 
and in so doing, really signal to the market. So, for example, at the end of 2020, Cheesecake Factory got dinged for not adequately disclosing risks associated with COVID. That was, again, the fine itself wasn't large, but it was a signal to the market and it was a signal to, um, and it was a reputational hit. The most recent one with Bank of New York is really, again, signaling to the broader market that although the more recent ESG regulation is still under proposal, to the extent that it can, the, e, the SEC will leverage this one clause if it finds that you're overly stating. And I think what we'll begin to see, because the SEC has another priority, and that's really to ensure that companies disclose cybersecurity risks. And that rule is not yet finalized, but to the extent that there's an overt breach and a company doesn't disclose it, I think we could potentially see some other signs that, again, are like uh, signal. And in terms of what the role of the CFO is, I would say the CFO, the board, everyone involved in the financial reporting process to the extent that you're a public filer, the, the goal here is really to pay attention to the spirit and the intent of what the SEC is proposing. So often, you know, the proposal process takes many forms, um, many steps. There's a, an initial proposed rule, and then there's a comment period, and often the final rule, if it goes final, um, deviates quite a bit from the initial proposed rule. But by reading those closely, you get to understand what is a priority to the SEC or to any regulator who can find you. And I think that's really what the objective is here. It's to get companies and public filers to pay attention and to um, honor the spirit of the law versus just the word of the law as it is at that time. I think that's really the bigger, the bigger message here. And let's take a step back. So as I mentioned uh, in the intro, ESG, it's something I hear about a lot these days, but it's like the term is relatively new to me. So it stands for envirom Environment, Social, and Governance, correct? Correct. And sure. when when and so, when did you see this start emerging um, and becoming a priority with the SEC and and other regulators? Yeah, I would say that the SEC is probably one of the later um, parties to the game. This really has started as more of a grassroots movement where um, investors, people, people who then have become investors, have started to say the role of companies has traditionally been to serve stockholders. But we want to expand the role of companies because that only worked when there was true competition and you didn't have these large market dominant players like you have today. Um, and since we do have these large market dominant players, we should require more of them. We want them to not just serve stockholders, but we want them to serve stakeholders. And stakeholders can be more broadly defined as customers, employees, society as a whole, and the globe, right? And so how do we get companies to serve a different set of stakeholders? Well, the way to do that is to petition the large investors, so like the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, the State Street, you know, who own, who, who are large institutional investors for the majority of those companies listed on the exchanges. And so it really started as a movement through the proxy voting cycle to demand more of companies and to have those companies put forward plans to really do more. Now, other countries like the UK, which is like a front runner in this space, they have moved to more of a regulatory space where they're requiring that of the companies. And then we have states like California is proposing a rule. 
to have more of a climate disclosure requirement if you're based in California. But I would say that the movement really has carried more heft and weight from the um, investor base. So this is one where, um, from a perfect you know, economic model perspective, it really is holding companies' feet to the fire slightly differently by using the stakeholders that it traditionally serves, those investors, to demand more of companies. So it's, it's really been an interesting movement. And how should businesses square and then, the... Since then, oh, I'm we've sorry. Seen, Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, I talk too much again. <laughs> I jump in too often. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I think what we're seeing now with the SEC is that they're really um, moving more, they're learning lessons from other countries that are much further along in the regulatory space and starting to take a firmer position. Um, and, you know, we'll see how that goes. So where do you think this will eventually evolve to? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think it's going away, for sure. I think that um, it's clear that as a society, um, a determination has been made that companies have to serve a broader set of stakeholders. And um, that part of the privilege of doing business and making ginormous profits is going to be that something has to be given back to the planet and to the people. Now. How quickly we move, I think that's TBD. Um, we can look at other countries that are further ahead and kind of take a step back and, and actually learn from some of their, um, maybe where they were too aggressive at first and um, maybe do a more moderate approach. But I think we are a bit of a ways away from really being able to, you know, since this, is, this podcast is more geared towards um, CFOs and people in the finance space, the real challenge is going to be quantifying a lot of these metrics yep. um, and really being able to put good numbers to it. So if you think about how long it took for fair value accounting to really get mature, and that was just putting value on transactions or assets that didn't ha- had a less um, liquid environment, um, I think you could a- imagine that it will take a considerable amount of time to get refined and robust with how we measure things like ESG. And then the one that's easiest to measure, which is climate, even that is hard to measure. So I think I think it's the move in the right direction and it will evolve. Um, I think that companies do well to not get over aggressive and over promise in this space. That's kind of again the signaling we saw from that um, Bank of New York um, sign. Um, but to be thoughtful, methodical, and since we identify that investors really are demanding this to really take an opportunity specifically for boards of publicly traded companies to get in front of your large stakeholders and investors before the proxy season to understand what's important to them and try to bake that into your plan going forward. I think those would be some of the key takeaways from the moment. And and along those same lines of being able to put value on this, how should businesses square the cost-benefit equation of ESG? So, the reason I love this question is because I don't know, Megan, if you've moved recently or changed your utility provider lately. No, neither. No. Okay. Right. Now, if you do, this is a very interesting question. So I mentioned to you that I've recently kind of come to the um, New England area. So upon signing up for utilities, um, one of the things that really struck me is I was asked the question, would you like to have standard utilities or green utilities? And I was like, huh, that's interesting. What's the difference? And the answer was, well, one costs 14% more than the other. But some people choose to go with the green utility because it's better for the planet. 
And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. No consumer and no business should be put in the position to have to choose spending more to get what they value as a good outcome for the planet. And so I think the real challenge here or the the learning is going to be two things. Number one, it's a lot cheaper to not do damage to the environment than to clean up. So think about like oil spills and how much it costs to clean up versus just taking preventative measures. And then the other is going to be how can you take um, how can you take the notion that we have to engage in more sustainable activities and make that profitable? And so I think what investors are kind of signaling to companies is that it, to the extent that your strategic plan on how to get to ESG suggests that you might need to spend some time investing in some technologies that will allow you to be greener in the future, that is okay as long as there's a good strategy, go-forward strategy, and then that would mean that in the future, you would want to see that um, consumers benefit and companies benefit from the investment in a sustainable technology that allow the company to perform in a more um, environmentally sustainable way. Yeah, so hard to put numbers around stuff like that. (laughs) It is now. I think it won't be so much in the future. If you think about just like the cost of a Tesla, versus the cost of a normal car plus gas. So to the extent that the cost of a Tesla plus recharging is less than the cost of a new car plus gas, then now you have a very easy economic model to follow. And I think that is really the the way that companies have to continue to think about it. Now, in year one, was the cost of a Tesla less than the cost of a car plus gas? No. But now, a decade later, is it? Well, kind of. You know, it's starting to become that way. And yeah. so um, making those trade-offs and being able to articulate them to investors and to stockholders, I think is important. So last question, um, as a CFO, it's a very tumultuous world. I mean, we're starting to emerge from COVID, but there's still a lot of other stuff going on. So what what keeps you up at night? So that's a great question. Um, what keeps me up at night? I think... You know, a lot of the things we've mentioned, but probably um, more specifically, it's making sure that as a business, we're staying current. So, you know, are we staying green? Are we um, being uh, innovative? Are we um, allowing ourselves to get stuck in our old ways of doing things? I think one of the purses of, of working at a company that's fairly successful is, you can get complacent and say, well, we're successful. That means we're doing everything right. And so I would say the things that keep me up at night would be how to challenge that, how to make sure we really are delivering the best value so that five years from now, 10 years from now, we don't look back and say that there were some missed opportunities. And then um, we kind of touched on it briefly, but certainly the cybersecurity space, I think that's one where as a country, we're seeing a lot more vulnerabilities than we really had, especially as we um, think about a more remote workforce. And then um, kind of the changing role of the uh, regulatory reporting and disclosure space. I think that's one to really watch um, in the coming months. To your point about cybersecurity, it's, it is astounding to me the number of phishing emails and texts and lots of other things I get these days. It's just very scary. It's like, it's always important to remember that there's people whose full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> To get you to click on something, you know, yeah. and um, just like we have a full-time job, that's, there's, there's a whole industry um, that's 
you know, funded just by, you know, um, fishing and cybersecurity. Correct. Yeah, sad. Simone, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you so much, Megan. It was a pleasure. Yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experiences and the resulting insights. You like, I mean, your experience has been amazing. And I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today. And I wish you all the best. To all of our listeners, please tune in next week. And until then, take care. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Persona. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personive.com. Thanks for listening.